0: On this special episode of AvTalk, we welcome back AirCurrent Editor-in-Chief John Ostrower for a discussion on the state of the 737 MAX's return to service, and what we've learned this month with the release of numerous reports, including the Joint Authorities Technical Review and the final report from Indonesian investigators on Lion Air Flight 610. We also discuss Boeing CEO Dennis Muhlenberg's testimony to Congress this week. Hello and welcome to a very special
1: episode of Av Talk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. And we have a special guest today. It's John Ostrower, once again from the Air Current. Say hello, John. Guys, thanks for having me back. It's always good to talk to you, John. We
0: turn to you when we're in need of a whole lot of guidance. wisdom and guidance. And at this point in time, I think we could all use a little bit of wisdom and guidance because a lot has happened. In an interesting turn of events, a lot has happened and nothing has happened since we last talked to you. The 737 MAX is still grounded. It has not returned to service, even though when we first spoke about an extended grounding, it was projected that October would be when the aircraft returns to service. That timeline has slipped multiple times as various things have cropped up, and so we thought we would take a walk from the beginning of October all the way through today. Kind of walk through basically the month of October because it's been what I would call a a rather important month for getting the 737 MAX back into service. Or uh, we're recording this on the 29th of October. The FAA administrator, Steve Dickinson, writing in the USA Today, whether or not the 737 MAX would return to service. So, So I guess we'll start, we'll back up to the beginning of the month when one of the first major pieces of news came out about the 737 MAX is when the Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, sued Boeing for $100 million related to the, what it calls the basically the fraudulent certification of the
1: aircraft. It's quote was for deliberately misleading the organization and its pilots.
0: So, John, I was hoping you could walk us through why this is such a big deal I mean outside of the the obvious fact that one of the largest 737 Max customers pilots association is suing the manufacturer of the airplane.
2: Well this is it's not one of the largest it is the largest. Uh you know that's it is this is this is like family. The relationship between between Boeing and Southwest and its pilots is one of the most important in the in the entire industry. I mean that this is an enormous black mark against the relationship between what is in no uncertain terms, the largest group of trained 737 aviators anywhere on the planet, about 10,000 of them, just shy of 10,000. This is part of not only the technical challenge to demonstrate the safety of, of the 737 MAX when it comes back in service, but the relationship, the intangible, the trust that has been so badly damaged here between Boeing, its regulator, and its customers. So it's just it's it's another in a series of examples of, of how much rebuilding is going to have to happen even after this airplane goes back in service.
1: So to refresh some people's memories, this, the Southwest Pilots Association did not pull any punches in, in the filing, which is what you do in these kind of filings, but they use very strong language. And this is a direct quote. Boeing made a calculated decision to rush a re-engined aircraft to market to secure its single aisle market share and prioritize its bottom line. In doing so, Boeing abandoned sound design and engineering practices, withheld safety critical information from regulators, and it kind of goes on like that. So this was not any soft language. They 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 came to play for keeps here, didn't they?
2: They did, it, but there's also underlying here the tension between the pilots and management as well. Which, in the which, because as we trip through history, one of the big reasons why the max was the max was because of Southwest's necessity to have an airplane that that continued to hold the same type rating and the same requirement for training as the seven three seven ng, which obviously is the backbone of uh Southwest Fleet and has been for for um, since 1997. So, you know, there there are so many different stakeholders that are being tested here and that, you know, these relationships where each requires the other for their their inherent success just decimated. And this is this it's going to take a generation to repair. There are long memories in this business and certainly, I think, when you roll the, the lack of trust, the, the economic question, the safety question altogether, I, it just it sets the stage for what, what I think is going to be and conti- continues to clearly be a long road ahead for not just, again, the return to service from a technical perspective, but from a reputational one.
0: So, the beginning of October, we see that lawsuit filed. And then a few days later, the Joint Authorities Technical Review a Committee that was chaired by, sorry, chaired by Christopher Hart, who is a former NTSB board member. And then that joint authority, the, the jointness of that authority was folks from the FAA, the NTSB, as well as NASA and civil aviation authorities from Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, Europe, so EASA representatives, Indonesia, Japan, Singapore, and the United Arab Emirates. So there's a, a wealth of regulatory regulatory knowledge on this particular review committee, and they came up with a, a number of recommendations regarding the certification process. Uh, developing the certification and the design changes that occurred to the aircraft, and John, I was hoping you could walk us through the the importance of of this particular technical review. Well, I think it's it's important
2: in a, a few different ways. I mean, the one that I that I find that that is most important and that I don't think is is as obvious as others is actually the historical significance of it. So. Way back about 40 years ago in 1979, when the DC 10 was grounded. So there was, there was, last time the FAA grounded an airplane was when the 787 batteries um, decided to overheat, catch fire. Uh, that was back in um, early 2013 for three months. Before that, The only time uh, the FAA had grounded an airplane was 1979, and it was for 37 days after the May 1979 crash of American Airlines Flight 191. And just a really quick synopsis of what happened there, effectively, DC-10, American Airlines DC-10 is taking off from O'Hare, and it loses an engine on takeoff. The engine, the failure of the engine, literally, yeah, it literally, yeah, quite literally, lost it. It fell, it it tore off and fell, uh, fell to the ground, uh, flew up over the wing, hit the ground. In doing so, the crew lost control of the airplane and crashed uh, just northwest of of, uh, O'Hare Airport. The result of that, uh, the cause of that, I should say, was traced to essentially a maintenance practice where that airlines, American in particular, was using to remove the engine and the pylon in a single maneuver. And that was causing damage in the pylon, which ultimately caused stress fractures. And that was that was how the engine was ultimately failed on that particular day in 79. In what they also found was that when the engine tore away, it disabled the hydraulic system in that part of the wing and the, the wing slats on the forward leading edge of the wing uh, were retracted. And so you had an imbalance of lift. So effectively, you had... The left side of the of the wing with a higher stall speed than the right side. So the left wing stalls and the airplane rolls th- to the left and it loses control. But here's the thing: when the engine went, it went, took an electrical generator with it, and disabled the stall warning system, which in those days was only on one side of the of the airplane. The second, the other side of the airplane was actually an optional extra for airlines. And, Ooh, that sounds um, familiar. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so the crews were unaware that the airplane was stalling, and they also were not aware that the slats had retracted, nor nor were they able to control it because the electrical systems being disabled disabled the warning light, telling that the slats were were not. Symmetrically configured anymore,
0: John. Um, I, I want to jump in here for just a moment because Jason said something, and I want to make sure that all of our listeners are, are aware of kind of what we're talking about specifically. And Jason, you say that that sounds familiar, and I would like to be explicit about our comparison here. So, so the stick shaker on the DC ten, the second stick shaker. So there's a a stick shaker on in the DC ten. It was on the captain side, and the optional stick shaker was on the first officer side. So compare that. Optional equipment to the seven three seven max, and I'd like to be explicit about that here.
2: Yeah. So the max did not, or I should say, had a uh, a system that would alert the crew whether or not there was a, a disagree between the angle of attack sensors, and that was an optional equipment uh, as a um, a readout on the the captain and first officer's displays, along with a uh, an indicator that showed the angle of attack of the wing relative to you know flying the aircraft in, in normal operation assuming that the the AOA is beha- the AOA sensor is behaving properly additionally going back to the, to the DC10 what came out of that was that they actually as a condition for a return to service there had to be a uh, a second stick shaker put in second stall warning system along with a stall warning system that was dually electrically redundant and drew on two computers also what we're now seeing on the Max, as far as adding a second input to the angle of attack sensors, that will inform the operation of MCAS should it be needed. So it's again, you know, there are a lot of similarities here. And again, this was a, a, a quite a, a roundabout way to get to the original point, which is in the wake of that that grounding, there was a large blue ribbon panel that was assembled in the year that followed followed the the grounding to ask. Almost exactly the same questions that the JATR was asked to answer. Does the certification system work? Does the system of delegation to manufacturers work? What were the conditions under which the airplane was certified? Was there was there adequate oversight? What can be made made better? Again, I almost identical mandate. The difference was in, in 79 and 80, it was a panel of, of US experts who were some you know former NASA folks you the there was the head of the flight safety Foundation those uh, aviation safety consultants uh, retired Boeing. Aerodynamicists. It was a very illustrious group of experts, but in in turn, it was also only Americans. In the case of the GHR, it's far more far more global, and regulators being represented were effectively countries that had the largest populations of seven three seven max operators. So Canada, UAE, China, so on and so forth. That really changes the the, the global nature of, of the discussion. But the funny thing is, they actually came to the exact same conclusions forty years apart. That. The de- system of delegation for certifying an airplane was, or and continues to be, the most ideal situation given all the constraints and realities of the commercial aircraft industry. However, all of the points that were raised by the JHR and then forty years ago still stand. That the, the the FAA is not capable of certifying an entire airplane itself, given the fact that there is a you know pull of expert voices and that goes to industry because that's where that's where the technology is being developed that's where the money is. and so they there's this the same talent crisis at the FAA today as there was forty years ago. And then when you talk about issues with communication and bureaucracy, I would even say that the JHR even went one step farther and actually saying that they actually found, you know, undue pressure within the system within Boeing that could have affected the outcome of, of how Mcas was certified. So again, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it really does rhyme. And I think it it tells us it's really helpful to, to use that as a template for understanding kind of what happens next and what changes, and and ultimately how this airplane is is, is restored to service when it finally is.
0: So the JATR report doesn't carry any legal force. It, it's not an FAA rulemaking document or anything like that, and and the JATR committee was explicit in saying that we were not tasked with providing any you know these are just recommendations to be followed or not followed similar to to an ntsb report where you know we can determine the cause of a crash but we can't you know necessarily make any rules to to enforce our recommendations due to the international nature of this particular review as opposed to the dc10 review which included just uh, American experts in in 1979 1980 do you think that this will have more of an effect or or is this just going to be something that um, you know we we saw 1979 we, we've seen it in, in 2019 it's the same story and in you know 40 years we'll go oh remember the JATr report about the 737 max and, and we'll do the whole thing over again
2: well, it's actually funny you should say that because because I think that it, the JHR report, along with the NTSB recommendations that came out just before that as well, which touched on effectively, there needs to be a way of figuring out how pilots and their aircraft interact with one another, and that was echoed again by by the JATR. Uh, I think that's going to inform a lot of the process of getting the airplane back in, in service outside of the U.S. And I think it's back in the, in seventy nine. Actually, the reverse happened. It wasn't that the U.S would would go first and the rest of the world would follow. In 1979, what happened was, the US actually kept the airplane grounded for longer than Europe. Europe was like, we've already certified the DC-10. We think this is a maintenance issue. and We've done the inspections. The airplanes are fine. We are going to order them to fly again, because under the Chicago Convention, which governs uh, global aviation as a, as a treaty, uh, effectively, that the U.S. can't nullify other another country's airworthiness certification and validation of an airplane. So, a couple of weeks before the FAA actually did it, Europe put the DC-10 back in service. So, it's actually entirely the reverse situation of what what we're seeing here. And there was a huge diplomatic fight around that because, uh, effectively, there was a worry that, uh, like you know. What we see today was that there was going to be an undermining of the FAA's authority. You know, DC-10s were actually banned from U.S. airspace until the grounding was uh, lifted in the U.S. So, you know, you had you had airlines that were needed to fly the transatlantic and transpacific that could not, as a result of that. So, again, you know, what it does in terms of informing the, where we go from here, I think, really is the JTR is setting up a, essentially a, a framework which will no doubt inform how how you know regulators in china regulators in europe regulators in canada are going to see this process unfold and again i would just refer to what what where we started was again getting the airplane certified is a, is a technical question getting the airplane the faith in the airplane restored is more of an emotional one and one has to inform the other but they ultimately are two separate discussions and they they are not easily solved with the same answer
0: so Taking that as a jumping off point into what happened a week after the JATR report came out, as far as the technical and emotional responses. So, what happened, and you can help us walk through the timeline a little bit more, but basically, a set of text messages between two Boeing pilots was released that shed a little bit more light on the certification of MCAS, but also raised a host of questions for how Boeing and the FAA interacted to certify that particular bit of technology on the airplane.
2: So, this was an exchange between a guy named Mark Forkner, who is chief technical pilot of the 737 MAX, and Patrick Gustafson, who was a technical pilot who is actually now uh, chief technical pilot of the 737 MAX program for Boeing. and He took over uh Forkner's position after he went to go fly for Southwest. And so, effectively in, in so many words without actually reading the transcripts, effectively the exchange captures uh, you know two guys who were off duty and having what anyone would characterize as a very 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 ill-advised uh series of wording uh wording of 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 how the MCAS system was behaving in the simulator, by the way that's different from on the airplane. In the simulator, and ultimately the pressures that they, that they were feeling from their management, and you know, at one point, Forkner actually says, you know, I un- unknowingly lied to the FAA, or I think to the regulator, which presumably would, in this case, would be the FAA and he was saying that because you know he, he asked for the the system to be removed from the from the manual but there was a change in the in the in how the system was being implemented and of course in isolation this it looks like a smoking gun the reality is that that Boeing and the FAA Boeing was aware of the changes that were being made the FAA was aware as well but is at the center of this and in this exchange but i think that's important to separate the salaciousness of of the of the text message exchange and really emphasize the context of it because the context of it fundamentally is that these are two technical pilots who are under enormous enormous pressure to complete a commercial aircraft program and they even talk about how the test pilots are in, are under incredible pressure from management and you know and how crazy that is and so that to me is the important subtext of this which I would just refer back again to the JATR, which uh, talks about, again, this undue pressure that was taking place inside the, uh, inside the MAX uh, certification effort, the, the, the lack of communication, the improper assessments, the engineering chaos that was happening during the, this development. I think we saw, we saw that in this document. And it, and, you know, we can, it can be described dryly in the JATR report, but it comes to life in these text messages. But we also didn't need the text messages to tell us that there was bad communication, high stress in this program, and ultimately, what again, what the JTR described as undue pressure on those actually doing the certification of this system. So within all of that, you know, it it is certainly illuminates things in in a very you know approachable. An understandable way that, oh my goodness, there are these guys having this having this conversation. But ultimately, I think at the end of the day, it just serves to reinforce the context under which they were actually operating, which was under extraordinary, extraordinary pressure. And feeling like they what what's what sounded like you know how they were describing was that they were alone and be trying to get information uh, moving in the in in the direction that they needed it to go. So you know, it certainly did not help Boeing's public perception. It did not help the perception of their transparency on Capitol Hill. This was a document that was first furnished to the Department of Justice early in the year before the second Ethiopian crash. Um, just as a relevant aside, we don't know why the DOJ was fishing for, for documents people assume that it was related to the lion air crash but again also we don't know that for sure so who knows um that's a that's a question big question in my mind but within that again it just it's just another it's another match lit match on on a bonfire that really revol- you know that is is the immolation of of trust in in boeing and they get get to getting this airplane flying again. and I think there's still a lot of firefighting work to be done that goes well beyond just getting the airplane back
0: into service, but that is, of course, the the important starting point. So the text messages come out and it it seems kind of at first, before we really understood the entire conversation that was taking place there, it, it seemed more damning. Than it actually turned out to be. It turned out to be more of a, we already knew this, but here it is in their own words type of situation rather than additional information or new information when it was all said and and done. But I feel like the conversation that that was captured there, you know, we we talked about communication and, and things like that. They weren't communicating within their own organization and that's what that's what struck me you know they that felt we know that, of that what i'm saying is is that those two you know in their text messages were complaining about not having the full set of information about what the airplane was supposed to be doing
2: well look i think I think it's the whole point of that is that it, it is a snapshot, and you know we don't i mean there have been a million documents literally a million pages of documents that have been supplied to investigators at various different three letter organizations around this and emails and text message exchanges and all of that so when you have something like that as a snippet you know it has to be evaluated in, in the larger context we also we also we know the macro context but we don't know everything in between as far as what else was being discussed and you know look these are these are massively complex development efforts and which come with massive massive paper trails also And so I think it has to be seen in that way. But I I just would, the one way I I think is most important, like I said a moment ago, was just it just goes to show, I think, how much it reinforces a lot of frustration around the transparency of this process and what, again, is going to be a long, hard road to rebuild trust between Boeing and its customers and and Boeing and the flying public.
0: So. There have been a number of calls out, I, I guess you know, from media, from outside groups, to overhaul Boeing's leadership, and that happened on the twenty second of October. A little bit, where uh, Kevin McAllister, Boeing's uh, commercial aircraft chief, a num- left the organization. You can describe it in a, in a few different ways, I, I guess. But I was hoping you could walk us through the significance of McAllister's departure.
2: So uh, Kevin McAllister first joined Boeing as its CEO. Sorry, Boeing Commercial Airplanes CEO. So Boeing is split into to three units: it's the commercial airplane business, the defense and space business, and the global services. Business, which is sort of unites both of the other the other two, and uh, Kevin McAllister was appointed in November of 2016. So he had just coming up on three years. By the way, he had a three year contract, and that was obviously not renewed. And he came over from GE, and he was the head of services for uh, for GE Aviation. So he's effectively selling uh, engine maintenance packages to uh, airlines that are flying GE engines. And Kevin spent much of the last year dealing with the the situation with with the Max. You know there were there were a lot of there were a lot of other things going on uh, at Boeing. The triple seven X has been uh, delayed because of engine issues with uh, with the GE nine X engine. Uh, the seven eight seven backlog has shrunken, and ultimately, the Boeing actually announced just last week that they were cutting production from fourteen airplanes per month back to twelve uh, next year. And there was there just a series of, of of things that were kind of floating around that were unrelated to the max. There were also some upset customers. That being said, McAllister, from my reporting, did not expect to be fired at the end of that board meeting. It was a two-day board meeting. It was a Sunday-Monday board meeting and was absolutely... Taken aback by his by his dismissal, you know there are a lot of folks who are in this industry who genuinely believe, and I think uh, rightly, that he was being scapegoated, given everything else that that ha- that has been going on. Certainly, you know, Kevin was 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 well liked inside of Boeing by his staff, and it was it was a big big shock that that this actually happened. There had been uh, some indications in the probably the week or two uh, running up to this. So there was a. Uh, a bit of bit of color inside the, the a story around from the New York Times around how Dennis Mullenberg, Kevin McAllister's boss, lost his chairmanship. They're, the Boeing CEO position is Boeing President, CEO, and Chairman, and now it they split that off. So it's Chairman is a different position, and then President CEO is just one position. That's where Dennis Mullenberg has his his current role. And about how some custom customers were were upset about uh, about Mullenberg uh, about uh, McAllister's handling of of things that have gone. Over the last year, some saw that as kind of laying the groundwork for this dismissal. A lot of the customers I've spoken with were actually far more upset with with Mullenberg's handling rather than McAllister's. So it, it's not it's not immediately clear that this was was like, you know a painting a, a target on um, on Kevin McAllister's back. But the reality is he's out, and Dennis Mullenberg still has a job. So you know Mullenberg testifies today. I should say um, you know today, Tuesday. And on day one, this is so. What, what, what's the day today? It is um, the twenty ninth of October, and so he'll go go again uh, tomorrow to the to the Senate. And a lot of a lot of folks have said, that, "Well, okay, what happens to to Dennis Mullenberg will be decided based on the outcome of these hearings. The first and foremost goal of which is to do no additional harm. And so we'll see how that ultimately plays out. But that being said, Kevin's departure. Creates a lot of uncertainty in the direction of of, of the company, uh, certainly the commercial unit, which had you know which needs to get the Max back in service, you know, as the first ten priorities on the on its strategic agenda, along with getting the triple seven X into flight testing, figure out what airplane comes next, and but all of that is mired in uncertainty given given the
1: new the new change of leadership and 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 everything going on with the Max. So you just alluded to it a bit, but let's talk about the NMA. For a second, you had a really great article on this. What's your take? And in, in summary, does it exist anymore? Will it happen? Will it not happen? Or is Boeing in any position to do a new aircraft, a clean sheet? You know, at the end of October uh, twenty nineteen, there is no
2: strategic appetite to do a new a new commercial airplane. I think eventually, I think there 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 is no way that they can make a decision, given given the uncertainty around. The amount of resources that they'll have to do a commercial airplane, what their customers will want, will the max? I mean, I think it's a fair question asking, will the max survive the grounding? Um, you know, certainly there's a huge back, there's a multi-thousand airplane backlog for this for the max. Will that survive? I mean, the one of you know, someone suggested to me the other day that the thing that will that if there is a a really a big hit to the to Boeing, the one thing that is. That Boeing has going for it is that it is a duopoly. There really is not another another option for airlines to go as far as seeking airplanes. Airbus is sold out till 2025 to you know before they start getting any appreciable orders. Order, I should say, um, open orders for airplanes again. So so it's it's an incredibly constrained market. But again, that's assuming that that demand holds. There's questions about the, the global economy. But back to the NMA for a second. I mean, we we've been having the NMA debate. NMA is new mid market airplane. Just to just to, a quick. Refresher. It's it's a today. It's a two hundred and twenty to two hundred and seventy seat small twin aisle aircraft that effectively can fly between 4,000 and 5,000 nautical miles. So that's just take uh, for instance here that is Chicago comfortably to uh, to Western Europe or uh, you know I guess four thousand miles uh, is. You know, Houston to London I think also so you, you just it's a, it's a medium range airplane it's not it's not it doesn't have the ultra long range legs of of the 787 or the a350 but would aim to replace um, older 757s on the small end and seven six sevens on the upper end and uh, a3 aging a330s from Airbus but what I found is that there are a lot of very influential customers uh, who uh, requested anonymity to to speak to me about this. That don't want an airplane that sized. It's just there is they're effectively what what the the message to me was that they for the price that Boeing wants to charge for the capability of the airplane, it is too expensive and it is ultimately uh, potentially too heavy to do the mission that they want. So increasingly there has been a preference for essentially what's called the FSA, the Future Small Airplane, and the FSA is uh, is really a effectively it's like a it's like a big 737. It fits almost in a in a spot that where the 757 would would be. And from what I understand, uh, recently there were a small handful of US European and leasing customers who have been shown plans for a 180 seat to 210 seat roughly uh, seat airplane that would fit in there. We don't know whether or not This would either immediately follow plans for the NMA, which, by the way, is still being worked on quite actively, or it would supplant the NMA. But the technology behind the NMA, many are very much of the belief that that the technology in the NMA would be applied to the FSA. So things like the fuselage, the automated automation technology, and one tool in particular, which, which not without getting far too technical in it is called model based systems engineering. And it's a remarkably dry way to describe what is effectively a digital twin. Of uh of the airplane, so essentially saying you're designing the airplane. There is a the physical airplane feeding data off of it, feeding back into a digital model, which in turn is getting smarter and able to make decision, make you know do design improvements, which you're in turn able to feed back into the physical model, which in turn feeds more data back into the digital model. It's it's a very it's an incredibly it's really the the cutting edge of of manufacturing and design technology. But like all you know major advances in in. Uh, Technology, they're sometimes not ready. So the, this big cost-saving push that that Boeing wants to have in terms of cutting the development cost of the airplane is not ready for prime time. So the, the risk is that, that they would actually go ahead with a program not having this ready, this technology ready, which could cause, as we saw with the seven eight seven, things can get really, really delayed and be far more expensive than been first anticipated by essentially convincing yourself that you are ready. So that's a huge problem. That's a huge problem uh, that Boeing needs to solve. Both. Strategically, because you need to figure out what your customers want, given everything that happens with the Max, and you need to be able to deliver it at a, at a price that, that they will pay for. So you know, there is huge amounts of uncertainty around leadership, around technology, around market size that effectively throws this whole effort into limbo. And by the way, there are more than a thousand engineers inside Boeing working on this right now. So they they're going to need to to have a direction sooner rather than later once the airplane the max is ungrounded because you know there's many of the belief that Boeing is going to need some good news and a new airplane and the effort that comes along with that would certainly represent that so it, you know it, it, it's a it's a way for them to be proactive about the future of their of their product so there are so many different layers of this that need to be answered before we even get to a new airplane launch but i think it again underscores both again the technical technical solving the technical side of it but again the strategic side of it around around trust in in, in boeing and it's in the airplanes that it, that it develops
0: let's take a quick break And uh, when we come back, we can discuss, we're recording on October 29th, of course, and it has been a year uh, since the crash of Lion Air Flight 610. So when we come back from a quick break, we'll talk about the final report that was issued last week from Indonesian investigators. And then we'll turn our attention to Dennis Muhlenberg's testimony to the U.S. Congress, the first part of which was today, and the second part of which was tomorrow, to see what else we've learned. So stay with us for a moment. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's been a year to the day since the crash of Lion Air Flight 610. And last week, Indonesian investigators published their final report into the crash in a Extremely thorough report, I thought you know almost three or over three hundred pages, and that lays out not only a very very detailed account of of the accident flight but also a, a thorough accounting of how the aircraft was designed and then certified, uh, w- which I thought was probably very reflective of the the situation we find ourselves in with with this airplane.
2: Absolutely, I mean it's 322 pages long. There is detail in that that has that I'm still churning through. I mean, I've not had a chance to sit down and, and 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 go front to front to back on it. But what I have seen is its thoroughness is really extraordinary. I mean, they. Really went to such an incredible extent to make sure that that they answered all the questions that were had about this situation, which included both really damning revelations about the airline, about Lion Air, about its maintenance practices, really damning revelations about the development of MCAS at Boeing, and um, you know, and really very critical look at the behavior of the pilots. And so they really didn't pull any punches, and they really gave incredible amount of attention to each particular section of this. And so I think that that I think is, that's really a good thing. That's a fantastic thing because I think it it, it ultimately speaks to the seriousness of, of, of the situation. And I think that there was, you know, there repeatedly been claims of political bias or, or, you know, white, white, white whitewashing, and they've really done an extraordinary job here. So I think that, that that's going to you know, look. It's again, like I said, it's a 322-page document, and anyone who said that they've read the whole thing is 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 full of it. But I think that the result of it is going to be there's a lot of things that came out of that that I think show and illustrate really illustrate some of the failures that took place in terms of how MCAS was designed, how the how Lion Air maintained their planes, and how the pilots were trained. But again. I think it's it's important to remember that if you look at that chain, it begins with MCAS as the as the foundation for it in terms of what the triggering event was. Without that, none of these two the 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 other failures happen in the way that they happen. You know, I think that one of the things, that the biggest takeaways that I've had from from the report, uh, certainly around the MCAS certification, really boils down to effectively that the way that the Max system, I'm I'm generalizing out here for 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 simplicity purposes for for the, the sake of, of discussion, but effectively the, the rate of failure of an of an angle of attack sensor, which was the single point of single sensor feeding the MCAS system was ultimately certified at a lower reliability, a demonstra- lower demonstrated reliability than the system was certified as a whole. So effectively the rate of failure for the reliability of an angle of attack sensor was not. What the overall system was 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 effectively given its level of reliability. So you could see how in its very foundations, this was this was there were a lot of flawed assumptions that were made based on inherently bad data. And again, answering how that happened is again key to understanding how how it doesn't happen again, and you know really understanding why it happened in the first place. But it's the the findings were really really powerful. I, I thought and,
1: is what you're saying there that the angle of attack sensor, the, the rate of failure on that was projected to be so much drastically lower than it actually turned out to be? That they never really anticipated MCAS activating it as frequently as it actually did. Is is that what you were saying? Yes, effectively, yeah, effectively. But they also had the data
2: which showed them the rate of failure on the angle of attack sensors. So why this wasn't reconciled adequately is still, I think, is still one of the big questions. But you know why safety assessments weren't weren't being updated, and and so on and so forth. You know that's that's the thing. I mean, it, again, you know, how these hazards were classified were not ultimately they, they just they were just they were completely out of whack for the assumptions that were being put in them.
1: Yeah, that's definitely troubling. If they knew the rate of failure on the angle of attack sensors and still designed MCAS to be a single point of failure, relying on that one sensor, that that's definitely troubling.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, what are the technical reasons that was that was created the way it was created? You know, it's it's funny because a lot of people talk about MCAS as a the, the failure of MCAS as, you know, it was a bug in the system. It wasn't. Actually, MCAS actually worked exactly as it was supposed to. It was to. a feature, not a bug. It, precisely, precisely. It it behaved exactly as designed. And but how it was designed was the, was ultimately the problem.
1: Yeah, I guess that that really old computer saying garbage in, garbage out, and the MCAS system was getting garbage data, so it was giving garbage flight controls out, uh, essentially. It was, as you said, doing exactly what it was designed and coded to do.
0: Let's for a moment talk about the JTR report. Add some recommendations. the the JT six one zero report. adds some recommendations. None of these carry the you know the the force of you have to do this. However, Boeing has indeed made some changes to how MCAS will operate, both in the software, but also well. I mean, mostly in, in software changes to to interpret the data that the airplane provides. It, John, can you walk us through some of the changes that have been implemented to the system?
2: Yeah, sure. So MCAS will only activate, will activate once, um, is kind of what one of one of the earlier earliest you know sort of most obvious changes that they're making. So effectively, rather than resetting itself and then firing again, it will activate once and then, but only in that in that activation will only will actually will be far less aggressive than it was initially. Uh, it will also re- rely on um, not two angle of attack sensors, but both fight data computers. So essentially, and if there's a a mismatch uh, between those, it will actually, it it will disable the system. So it assumes that you you won't be in a a high angle of attack, the nose high system risking a stall, uh, and it will just, it won't function. So it doesn't Erroneously activate. There's also uh, software additions that are being made to the flight deck. Uh, there's, there's so the, the the software that was we talked about earlier that was optional for an added cost. There was so essentially the angle of attack sensor and the angle of attack disagree light warning light, which is on the on the the, the flat panel displays in front of the, of the pilots, will be included standard. So Boeing thinks that that those are going to be the things that that really. Solve the technical robustness of of the system, both in terms of reliability, in terms of what what is what is required here, and 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 you know this is what should have been done initially, but the problem is it, it there you know you begin to to peel back an onion around the assumptions that go into a lot of the other systems, which is, from my understanding, one of the big reasons why things are taking as long as they've taken, because it's not just MCAS. It's like, okay, well, you assumed X to design a system and certify a system. Where else have you assumed X? And If that's the case, then then we have to go back and look at that just to, again, revalidate the assumptions. I mean, think of it this way. The MAX first flew in January of 2016. It was certified in the spring of 2017. So I believe around April or May of of the following year. So that's 16 months of, of flight test. From the point of realization about MCAS, we are now 12 months in for just a change to the MCAS system. And the flight control system, twelve months. So you know you you see how how thorough this review how deep this review is going. And you know coming back to what the NTSB recommended was around a review of of how the effectively all these the systems interact with um, all the different pilot alerts. And because I think it's one thing that that I think is is worth was worth mentioning around the Lion Air situation is that the pilots weren't. Just having MCAS activate, they were having um, a you know overspeed warning uh, going off erroneously. They were having other uh, auditory bells and literally bells and whistles, you know, telling them that that they were the airspeed and the altitude were disagreeing. They were also most jarringly, they had a stick shaker going off on one side. And the stick shaker, it's like imagine if if a paint shaker is going off next to you. It there is an inherent psychological effect of of that. And the vibrations that come from that. I mean, I was I was on a seven thirty seven last week, and I was uh, something about four four or five rows back from the from the flight deck, and they were testing the six shaker as part of the normal pre flight checks, and I could feel it. I could literally feel it in my seat, four four rows back, and you could hear it. So I can't even imagine what it was like to to have that going off and try to try to manage, you know. A system that you don't understand uh, why it's doing what it's doing, along with the workload that comes along with that, psychologically, of course. So, you know, one of the big things that, that is, I think I still think left to to roll through this system and this review is understanding how all of these different parts of the seven thirty seven flight deck manifest with the assumptions around crew reaction times, and ultimately how different failures stack up on top of each other, and how you manage those. And that takes a long time, and so I think again we're we're still you know we're still you know here we are uh, late October. I think we're still several months away from seeing the airplane back flying again. I think that that all the all you know certainly the U.S. Airlines is sort of the bellwether in this one of all said. You know it's it's not going to be it's probably gonna be closer to February than it is, than it is January, and that actually they're resetting their schedules to to account for that. So. I mean, when it's all said and done, this will have been one of the most comprehensive reviews of a of a commercial aircraft, particularly one part of a commercial aircraft. But we still don't know what the outcome is fundamentally in terms of how global regulators are going, what what additional uh testing or requirements are gonna come out of global regulators. So I think we continue to see this as a as a very unpredictable situation. Remarkably unpredictable. And 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 I think that it's not clear to me from where we sit, again, at the end of October, when this resolves itself.
0: So the last piece of the puzzle, I, I guess, as far as we're concerned with today is Boeing CEO Dennis Muhlenberg went to Congress today to testify. In the first two days of hearings, today he sat for the, the Senate committee. Did we learn anything new today? that we didn't know already is there any additional information that that made his testimony worth a listen? Candidly no. I mean a lot of what
2: we've seen I mean members of Congress are relying on a lot of the fantastic reporting that's been uh, that's been done in in the media relying on the reviews by the JTR, the NTSB and so a lot of that is informing what what we've seen. There were not new revelations that came out of out of uh, the Senate testimony. Uh, like I said earlier, I mean, I think Dennis Muhlenberg's number one edict was "do no harm," and things are bad, so don't make them worse. And I think by that measure, I think he probably succeeded. You know, certainly the stock, you know, finished up on the day. Uh, there wasn't there wasn't certainly any catastrophic action there that would that would have maybe swayed public opinion or whatever. But I think it just goes to show, you know. Not to be cynical about it, but you know there there is certainly you know when you get Congress and you get large corporations in p r crises, there tends to be a a formula that both both sides undertake but I think the thing that came out of i think the the important more important part that came out of the testimony was not muhlenberg's testimony but but both chris Hart who was the chair of the j t r And Chairman Robert Sumwalt of the NTSB about their thoughts on how you actually fix this. And that to me was actually far more valuable um, in terms of where the rubber meets the road, because ultimately what is going to happen over the next year or two years is going to be a rethink on the certification process. And that's gonna come legislatively, it's gonna come from the FAA and it's gonna come from recommendations from the NTSB and and, and what what comes from the JATR. So that actually is aside from the the exercise in public relations that would that we largely saw today from Congress and and Boeing, this is going to be really informing those expert recommendations informing what how how you certify airplanes in the future and how you make the airplanes that are out there today even safer. So I think that actually from a value perspective that's where we should be focusing not on necessarily senders who have cameras in front of them.
0: And on that note I think we'll leave it there and we'll uh await by the time the podcast comes out Muhlenberg will have visited uh, the House of Representatives on Wednesday the, the 30th of October so we'll see if any news comes out there we'll we'll know already there but but like you said I I don't foresee us uh, learning any receiving any major developments from that as well John Ostrower Editor in chief of the Air Current, I want to thank you so much for joining us and walking us through what has been a very full month of Boeing and 737 MAX news and developments. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure.